Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. This is the third in our series of talks presented by Connecticut's Old State House about Connecticut's Constitution of 1818. In this episode, attorney Wesley Horton, president of the Connecticut Supreme Court Historical Society, describes the debates that took place during the state constitutional convention. It's a good idea to have listened to the first two in the series, episodes 45 and 55. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal and Connecticut Humanities. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Connecticut's Old State House for the third in our series on commemorating the Constitution of 1818. We're delighted to have you with us today. My name is Rebecca Tabor-Conover. I'm head of public programs here at the Old State House. I'd like to thank our series funder today, Connecticut Humanities Council for funding this series. I'm very pleased to introduce today's program, which is on the debates at the Constitutional Convention of 1818, some of which happened in our very building. Our speaker today is an old friend of the old state house, Wesley Horton. Mr. Horton is a partner at Horton, Dowd, Bartsky, and Levesque in Hartford. He has appeared as appellate counsel either at argument or on the brief in hundreds of cases over a span of 45 years, and he's participated in some of the most notable cases in the state, including the landmark case he successfully argued to the U.S. Supreme Court, Kilo versus New London, and the de facto school desegregation case he successfully argued to the Connecticut Supreme Court, Chef versus O'Neill. From 1997 to 2007, Mr. Horton was the chair of the Connecticut Bar Association's Professional Ethics Committee. He has written books on Connecticut Constitution and the history of the Connecticut Supreme Court. And since its founding in 2005, he's been the president of the Connecticut Supreme Court Historical Society. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Horton. Thank you. The first thing uh, you probably are all thinking who are not professional historians is why do you care about 1818? We all know that the Constitution we're talking about today was written in 1965, and so the 1818 Constitution is no longer in effect and is only of interest to historians. Uh, False. Uh, That's not what the Connecticut Supreme Court thinks. Because in 1965, Uh, Constitution was written for one primary purpose, and that was to do something about keeping the federal courts from taking over our legislature because of the one man, one vote uh, uh, rulings that had just been issued by the United States Supreme Court. That's why a constitutional convention was held in 1965, and most of the rest of the Constitution was unchanged uh, from 1818. Consequently, when, uh, when you're arguing a case in the Connecticut Supreme Court, or indeed in any court in Connecticut, and uh, you're talking about a provision of the 1965 Constitution that either is verbatim or is almost verbatim the language that was written in 1818, the, the judges will ask you, well, what was the intent of people in 1818? 
That's what they're going to want to know. They could care less what the intent of people at the Constitutional Convention in 1965 was, unless it had to do with one man, one vote, or had to do with some of the other minor issues that came up in 1965, like, for example, the education clause that was added that resulted in Horton versus Muskell and Sheff versus O'Neill. But putting aside uh, uh, a minor case like those, uh, most of the uh, Constitution of 1818 is intact today. So it's very important to know what happened in 1818 if you have a case today. So if you're a lawyer or you're a client and have a constitutional right and you find you aren't getting what you want down in Washington, maybe you should dust off that document uh, that was written in 1818 and see what your rights are and those may still be your rights today. So the next question uh, you're probably asking uh, if, uh, uh, if you're not a lawyer and you're not a historian is why did it take so long for Connecticut to get around to writing a constitution? I, I thought there was a revolution <laughs> in uh, 1776. And I thought what they did is they, uh, they tarred and feathered the governor and ran him out of town and got rid of the legislature and started things up anew. And in fact, in 11... Uh, colonies. That's exactly what happened. Within a few years, uh, there was a whole new government, whole new laws, uh, whole new constitution. But Connecticut and Rhode Island are the exceptions to that. And you, you may, I may be repeating what you uh, heard in the last uh, lecture, but it's relevant to what happened in 1818. And that is that uh, we didn't consider that anything important in Connecticut happened in 1776 as a matter of law because we were perfectly happy with what was going on before 1776 because we were running things. Why were we running things? Well, it's because in 1639, uh, we, and when I say we, I, we, I mean, of course, white men, uh, but we were, uh, uh, wrote what's called the Fundamental Orders, which is certainly the first document in the New World and arguably anywhere. I say arguably because there's some dispute about something that went on in, in Geneva. Uh, but putting that aside, uh, it's the first time when the people who were living there were writing their own document for how they wanted to be governed. And it, uh, the fundamental order says absolutely nothing about uh, the king. It says quite a lot about God, but not about, not about the king over in England, uh, who, by the way, was, uh, uh, was about to lose his head. Uh, that is relevant because... England had other things on its mind at that time, but when uh, uh, the monarchy was re, uh, restored in 1660, uh, the people in Connecticut decided, you know, we probably ought to have some confirmation that what we're doing here on our own is okay. So they sent over a delegation and the king said, where do I sign? Uh, and basically, the charter of King Charles II in 1662, which you can find uh, in an honored place in the state library, in the museum, is, is uh, a document that basically confirms 
what is written in the fundamental orders. And oh, by the way, says everywhere from, uh, uh, from latitude 42, which is in Long Island Sound, uh, to, um, latitude 41 to latitude 42, which is the border approximately with Massachusetts, west to the uh, South Sea is yours. Uh, minor technicality with New York and Pennsylvania, but uh, with inconsistencies. But in any event, certainly past that, where now Ohio is, Connecticut considered part of Connecticut. And oh, by the way, uh, uh, there are three uh, people that uh, uh, were responsible for executing uh, my father that I understand are now living in New Haven Colony. How would you like to uh, take over New Haven Colony? So in fact, uh, the land that is in the charter all came uh, to Connecticut and uh, New Haven lasted another three years before it was actually incorporated in Connecticut. So for the next 115 years, the, the colony of Connecticut was basically independent, with the exception of an 18-month period when you may have heard about the Charter Oak incident. But putting that aside, we wrote our own laws, we had our own judges, we had our own governor, there was nobody that was appointed or was under the control of England. So when, so when 1776 came, uh, you know, where it said uh, the king's attorney, we changed that to the state's attorney and a few minor things like that. But basically, if you go back and look at the laws before 1776, if they haven't been repealed or brought up to date, they're the same laws that are in effect today, going back to the 1600s. So why change anything? You know, as far as we're concerned, the charter of King Charles II uh, uh, supplementing the fundamental orders is the Constitution of Connecticut. It's not a constitution in the sense we normally think of today. It's a constitution in the sense you think of, of uh, the uh, uh, you know, various documents, including uh, the Great Charter in, uh, in England. But we consider it our constitution, so why rock the boat and do anything new? Uh, well, that was good for uh, a few decades. Uh, meanwhile, the rest of the country was moving ahead and the old idea of, for example, the, uh, the legislature was in charge of anything, which is what the fundamental orders, the f they, uh, they're in charge of the judges who are appointed every year, they're in charge of the governor. Basically, there was one branch of government and a number of things that the Federalists who were in, in control in, um, in Connecticut uh, well into the uh, second decade of the 19th century. It was becoming archaic, and you've heard about the, uh, uh, the convention that was here in this very building that really, at the end of the day, was very embarrassing uh, to Connecticut. Then what else happens? In 1815, Mr. Lung uh, kills, or allegedly now, allegedly kills his wife. So uh, there is a trial, and the trial is held by a three-judge court in Middletown, presided over, as it happens, by the Chief Justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court. At that time, the Supreme Court uh, was made up of, the trial judges were also on the Supreme Court. So uh, uh, he was condemned to, uh, to die, and uh, Lung uh, decided he wasn't going to get anywhere with an appeal to the Connecticut Supreme Court since the Chief Justice would be presiding in the Connecticut Supreme Court. So where does he go? He goes directly to the legislature, and the legislature finds, finds irregularities in the trial and orders a new trial. The legislature orders a new trial. Uh, the new trial uh, happens. Uh, he's convicted again and is executed before the legislature can do anything about it. But meanwhile, the judges are outraged. 
that the legislature would directly overturn a judicial uh, precedent. Meanwhile, for all these uh, many years, the, the government is basically a theocracy uh, run by the uh, Congregational Church. Uh, everybody has to be a member of the Congregational Church unless they opt out, and, and they have to pay taxes to the church. And they can opt out by uh, getting uh, uh, documentation uh, from some other established church, but you gotta get, uh, you've got to get that. And so there are a lot of people that are outraged about that. And then there's a the general outrage about all the property restrictions and the difficulty of, of people being, uh, you know, the limited, what, what was considered liberal in 1639 was not considered liberal by uh, the 18 teens. So these three were the basic things that got uh, uh, and a, a change in government in, in the mid-18-teens, uh, got a government in, in power that in 1817 said, well, maybe uh, we should have a constitutional convention. And so this, uh, interestingly enough, the constitutional convention uh, was, uh, was then held in the fall uh, of 1818, and the, uh, uh, there were two delegates uh, pointed from each town. By the way, just the way the legislature was apportioned until, uh, until 1965 when uh, one man, one vote went out where basically every town had every, either one vote or two votes, depending on how old the town was. Uh, so consequently, uh, Hartford at the convention had two votes and Union, being an old town, had two votes. Canton, however, being a new town that had just broken away from Simsbury, had one vote. So uh, there were approximately uh, 200 delegates uh, that were assembled for the Constitutional Convention in 1818, called for primarily three reasons. One reason was because of church-state relations. One was because the judges were upset. And the third was the people that wanted to extend the franchise. So those were the real reasons, quite different from uh, the federal constitutional convention in 1787. Uh, you, you have to, and you have to know that when you're reading the debates and you're, when you're reading the constitutional provisions, you have to realize what really mattered to the actual delegates in 1818. Now, uh, in 1787, uh, everything was in secret. Uh, the press wasn't allowed in. Uh, they, uh, uh, in, in fact, uh, one of the good reasons for it, in retrospect, is that nobody knew what was going on and they were exceeding their mandate in what they could do in 1787. They were supposed to be there to amend the Articles of Confederation. And if the word had gotten out during the convention that that wasn't what they were doing, it probably would have killed the whole thing. But in Connecticut, it was believed that transparency was a good idea. So uh, the press was allowed in uh, from the very beginning uh, and reported it uh, extensively. You can't believe what the press did in 1818. Uh, you know, they actually assumed that people were intelligent in 1818, <laughs> and I'll show you in a minute why that was so. Uh, so they, it was all reported, and yet 
until uh, 1991, the only way you could f possibly find out what the debates were was to go to the state library and look, unless you could get somebody to let you actually look at an actual newspaper, uh, which are usually fragile and nobody was allowed to look at, and look at the microfilms of the newspaper reports in 1818. Well, um, I decided to do that. This is a good place to take a break and hear a message from our state historian. I'm Walt Woodward. I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayinctshistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayinctshistory.com soon. Todayinctshistory.com, because big things happened in this state on this date. I decided to do that in 1989, and so together uh, with my wife Chloe, we spent months over in the State Library going over uh, various reports of the, what's called the Connecticut Current back then, uh, which is now the Hartford Current, and, uh, the, uh, and the Herald, which is uh, now the New Haven uh, Register. And, uh, this is the front page, and what does it say up here? It has the precise language, verbatim, for the proposed constitution. Not in some excerpt, not in some inner page, not, not the whole constitution is right there. And then, this is where you need your magnifying glass. I mean, this is the actual size of the print. So here, here it says, uh, this is the... Uh, Hartford Current, the Connecticut Current, September 1st, 1818. And it says, Connecticut Current, Hartford, September 1st, Connecticut Convention, on Wednesday, the 26th instant, instant means the last, the last month, agreeably to an act of the last legislature of this state, the delegates of the convention assembled in the courthouse in Hartford, right here, I think upstairs, but in this building, at 10 o'clock, Judge Root called for order. He suggested it as a question whether the convention should first proceed to the choice of a clerk or their president, and yeah, yeah, yeah. The point is, it's, 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 it's like there was a court reporter there taking it all down officially. And just to make sure that the Hartford Current uh, reporter wasn't biased, we also ran off the ones for the, as I said, for the New Haven Register to, to compare them. And they're not identical, but they're it, it, they're close enough that they were, uh, you know, because there weren't any stenographer uh, machines at that time. You know, they obviously were both taking notes down in shorthand. And it's obvious there are variations, but the variations, we've gone through the entire proceedings, and the, there are enough changes, that you, uh, differences that you know it was done by two people. But they're so close that it's not like, you know, somebody, one of them was trying to pull the wool over your shoulders. Uh, and in fact, uh, since since uh, we published uh, this in the Bar Journal in 1991, 
the state has actually gone through other reports, uh, other newspaper reports, and they come out basically the same thing. So this is, it's not official, but the current did it verbatim. It's really, it's, it's really amazing how this could happen 200 years ago. And I mean, obviously there was plenty of commentary. It's just, we're used to reading all these vicious back and forth by Publius and various supposedly uh, anonymous speakers. What you don't realize, in addition to all the screaming and yelling the newspaper publishers did each other, they actually put the documents in there for you to read and figure out on your own what's going on, which I think is just terrific. So, so we're there and we start. And the first thing that's done is, uh, after the clerk is done, is the, the governor of Connecticut, Oliver Walcott, is named uh, to the chair. And he acts very much like, uh, like George Washington in 1787. Uh, he had ideas beforehand, and they've been reported, in fact, in the, in the Journal of Connecticut Supreme Court History. Uh, but at the convention, he very much was sitting there, you know, running, running the debates and not participating in them themselves. So the very first thing he does is he appoints a, a, a committee of 24 under a very prestigious leadership of Jonathan Edwards' son, uh, who was a federal judge at that time, uh, to uh, write a, a Bill of Rights, a proposed Bill of Rights. And the, uh, the next day, they come in with a full Bill of Rights. Well, investigative reporting was just as good in 1818 as it is today. The current dropped the ball, but not the New Haven Register. The, the current said absolutely nothing about it except the report they came in with it. This is what the New Haven Register said. The committee ought to have told the convention that the above Bill of Rights is an exact transcript, word for word, from the Constitution of the new state of Mississippi. <laughs> passed in August 1817. It is rather unfair for our Constitution makers to plume their brows with other man's laurels. <laughs> in fact, the paper was exaggerating itself because uh, I examined it, uh, you know, and it's not word for word, but it's pretty close. Uh, and, I mean, that's a, uh, there's no other evidence of where it came from, but boy, it sure looks like the Mississippi Constitution of 1817, which is not to say, oh dear, because uh, I've traced the Mississippi Constitution back. And guess where you can get back to? You can get back to uh, Virginia. And that means, so, that means Thomas Jefferson. So it's still the South, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a much better pedigree. Uh, the language is not the same, but the issues are the same. And so we can breathe a sigh of relief that we're not we, we don't need to see what the uh, intention of the framers of the Mississippi Constitution were in 1817 in order to construe the Canadian Constitution today. But what it does mean is something that is also consistent with the scho new scholarship we know about the Federal Bill of Rights, which is, it was a ho-hum thing. That was not why they were there. That's not why the people were there in 1787 or 1791. It's not why the people were there in 1818, with exception of particular things like religion. Uh, the, uh, the latest scholarship on, uh, on 
James Madison is that Madison had no particular interest in writing a Bill of Rights. He only did it in order to uh, appease uh, Massachusetts and New York delegates who were very close. They almost voted against the Constitution and they were concerned in those states about too much power in the federal government and also wanted a Bill of Rights. And, and Madison said, don't, don't change anything now. I promise as soon as we get in, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, propose some amendments in, in Congress. And they went along with him. And what he did, he didn't want to do anything to lessen the power of the federal government. But he said, all right, let me throw in a Bill of Rights. I'll keep everybody happy and keep my promises. And that's, that's the latest scholarship on the issue. And that's very consistent <laughs> with what was happening in 1818. The Bill of Rights was not a big deal, except in certain specific ways. And in fact, when we look back, uh, interestingly enough, what we find when we're, we as lawyers are looking for uh, uh, what, what can we find about the intent of people in 1818 concerning all sorts of constitutional rights that we're interested in now, what we can look at is not the debates. There isn't much there unless it's about religion. What you're looking at is what judges had decided before 1818 and then assumed because certainly the lawyers in the convention and a lot of them would know what the judges had decided before 1818 that that's uh, you know, probably good indication of what the intent of the people in 1818 was if they had any intent. That is obviously exact opposite of what you can do with the United States Constitution because there was no government before uh, 1787. So you can't look at what judges thought before 1787 to interpret the United States Constitution. It's quite different because in Connecticut, you can look at what judges thought before 1818 to decide what the Connecticut Constitution means because we had a government going back to 1639. So anything any judge said before 1818 is good and you just never think about that. There's no such thing as looking at what a judge thought before 1787 because there weren't any judges <laughs> except possibly for the Articles of Confederation, but that's uh, a very minor a source. So while the Bill of Rights in general was not a big deal. Obviously, religion was. So there were actually three provisions on religion. And the first one was religious freedom. The second one was establishment. Uh, and the third one specifically had to do with disestablishing the Congregational Church. The first one is uh, religious freedom. And here's what uh, Delegate Treadwell says. He was a former governor, very old-fashioned Federalist. Uh, the last person you would think would say of, of, of the old congregational order. And here's what he says. Mr. Treadwell remarked that all sects of religion should be tolerated in this state. He had no objection to the article, but was willing that there should be universal toleration. Papists, Mohammedans, Jews, and Hindus should be allowed to meet together and tolerated. All should be tolerated agreeably to the article and nor force should be used against them unless to prevent acts of disturbance. He had no objection to an article of this kind. So as soon as he, of all people, said that, unanimously approved and accepted. Then they go on to what we would call the Establishment Clause uh, today. And there's one, two, three, four, five, six pages and then we come to Mr. Stowe, who was a newspaper editor in Middletown, who says, 
This question has been agitated ever since his memory, and he conceived this to be the only true ground, that the legislature have a right to legislate on all subjects relating to this world if they step off of that ground at all and presume to legislate on the subject of religion, they carry the matter too far. I mean, there's all sorts of good stuff in here if you have a religious freedom of religion establishment clause case that you'll never find in the debates in Washington in the, in the 18th century. And they go on and on about this subject and nobody knows it's there. And it's all there as fair game because many times there are cases under what is in, under federal law is the First Amendment that uh, are turned down in Washington. And in my opinion, uh, you know, a religious freedom of our establishment clause case that would be lost in, in Washington could well be won here. Then the other thing they were very interested in was, was separation of powers because there was one branch of government at that time. And uh, one of the most important delegates was Nathaniel Smith. Uh, he was one of the delegates from Hartford and he was what I would call a moderate Federalist. He was not like Treadwell, who was part of the old guard. Uh, Smith was the sort of guy who could get along with the other party. <laughs> uh, and he had this to say, which is highly relevant today. Shall the same power which enacts the law have authority to put it in execution? Let the executive power be distinct, and you may rely on a safe execution of the law. Coming to the Judicial Department, shall the legislature be the judge who is to put a construction upon the law which he has not himself made? Has not this been declared the very definition of despotism? Now that is obviously a highly relevant subject today for all the branches of government. When the legislature tries to interfere with uh, executive power or when the legislature tries to interfere with judicial power by, uh, you know, complaining about how decisions are made by judges, uh, you know, this is, this is a matter of great importance today. And once again, nobody reads. The, the debates of the 1818 Constitution. And it's right there for everybody to see if you have a separation of powers argument. And then they go on to judicial independence, a subject that we know something about in the past month or two. And, and there is all sorts of stuff in the 1818 Constitutional Convention about that. And, and here's one of Mr. Treadwell again, of all people. And try to remember, the old guard of the Congregational Church and everything, they believed the legislature should appoint the judges annually. That was the way it had always been done back into the 1600s, uh, you know, to keep the judges under the control of the legislators. And here's Treadwell, of all people, saying, able men will fill the bench, the law will be pronounced, and its principles rightly divided to the people if they have tenure, <laughs> if they don't have to worry about their job. And in fact, in 1818, they provided for good behavior uh, tenure, the same as the federal judges have now, to age 70. Uh, that was changed in the 1850s to eight-year terms. But the principle of, I would give all possible encouragement, both in time and emolument, to getting the best men to be judges. In this way, you establish a judiciary which shall do honor to the state and justice to the people. So then we had uh, who can vote, and there was general discussion about you have to increase uh, the, the uh, rights of voters for white men. 
we need more white men to be able to vote. You know, the poor, uh, you know, the, the, the lower classes, they should be allowed to vote too. But the former Chief Justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court, Judge Mitchell, had this to move. Judge Mitchell moved an amendment by erasing white male. <laughs> by erasing white male. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> Not just white, but male. This is 1818. And on motion of Mr. N. Terry, the question was divided and first taken on white. <laughs> After some debate was lost, whereupon Mr. Judge Mitchell withdrew the rest of his motion. <laughs> In other words, the black men had some chance. <laughs> Women had no chance. But isn't it interesting that in 1818, the former Chief Justice, of all people, suggested that women should be given the right to vote. So then we come to the actual vote on the Constitution itself. And um, first of all, it was passed by about two-thirds vote of the delegates. And then after they had done that, uh, they, uh, they had an argument about how many people in the state uh, have to vote on it in order for it to pass. On a motion made that three-fifths of the number shall be of the freemen, which is what voters were called then, on the question of ratifying, that was determined in the negative. Then there was another motion that uh, it be uh, four-sevenths of the people had to vote for it for it to pass, and that failed. And then there was a, a motion that uh, five-ninths of the people had to vote on it. That failed by a vote of 87 to 86. So it was presented on a majority vote and it passed by a vote of 13,918 to 12,384. If one more person had voted in favor of five-ninths, the Constitution would not have passed. <laughs> so, you know, it, some, some motion may sound trivial to you if you're voting on things, but uh, pay attention to the last vote, because it, it would have been fatal if, they, if everybody hadn't stuck together. So that is the 1818 Constitutional uh, Convention. The uh, Constitution is, in my opinion, in effect today, although uh, technically you'll hear that that's not the case. As far as I'm concerned, as a practical matter, what these people thought and said in 1818 is what I pay attention to when I'm in the Connecticut Supreme Court. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We thank Wesley Horton and Connecticut's Old State House. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman. Subscribe to Connecticut Explored and get the special fall 2018 issue commemorating the 200th anniversary of the Constitution of 1818, including a pullout poster of the full text of the Constitution annotated by members of the Connecticut Supreme Court Historical Society at ctexplored.org. Find a link to curriculum materials and further reading at ctexplore.org backslash constitution. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their action. More at bowman.legal. And Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Visit cthumanities.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.